and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you, you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring, fruition, you, bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Mark. I'm one of the team here. And uh, as I'm just arranging all my stuff here, uh, hi to you online, by the way, um, perhaps you could think about this question. Actually, some of you might want to grab a Bible. Uh, the reading, thank you, Claire, um, was on, is on page uh, 1189, um, if you wanted to follow along. Um, but this is my question as I'm fiddling about. If you were told by somebody reliable, somebody you could trust, that the world was about to end in seven days' time, how would you feel and what would you do? Would you panic? Would you try to visit all your family? Which item on the bucket list would you reach to first? There isn't time for everything. And uh, you can, uh, husbands and wives, you can confer as I said earlier, uh, husbands, if you think that going off for seven days fishing is the right thing to do, you perhaps would just want to have a word with your wife. If you're Elon Musk, $200 billion to spare, uh, then you might try to avoid the end of the world altogether by heading off to Mars. Maybe you fancy that. There's a bright future ahead on the red planet, apparently. Um, if you've only got four million, no worries. Uh, maybe you should head off to Wichita, Kansas, to the Luxury Survival Condo Project, where developer Harry Hall, Larry Hall, sorry, has converted a former missile silo into doomsday-proof condos. That's apartments or flats for us English people. Um, and they can accommodate up to 75 people deep underground for up to five years. It boasts amenities like a pool, gym, rock climbing wall, and a Whole Foods style supermarket. After all, 
what would the annihilation be without organic tahini? <laughs> so whether you'll jet off to Kansas or to the SpaceX uh, launch pad, um, the reality is that most of us don't have that choice. And before we go any further, lest there be any confusion, let me be doubly clear. I'm not, this sermon is not about the end of the world, this is, but it is about a very important doctrine, and that is the re Christ's return to this earth. And so today we're going to continue in our series, How to Light Up God's World, as we move from the book of 1 Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians. And by way of introduction, I'm just going to uh, be looking at what prompted Paul to write this book to the Thessalonians. And then we'll look at the topic, which is how to be faithful in the last days. So as an introduction to the book, and here we find the book uh, in, the, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, a group of people who literally believe they are living in the very last days before Christ's return, perhaps the last days. That is the second coming, as it's often referred to. And this misunderstanding has come about because of a unique set of circumstances. And this is what a uh, celebrated 20th century scholar, Warren Beesby, has to say about this. He says, the Christians in Thessal Thessalonica were grateful to God for Paul's first letter. But it did not immediately solve all their problems. In fact, the persecutions grew worse, and some believers thought they were living in the time of the tribulation. That's the time that which is to precede the second coming of Christ. And then a letter arrived claiming to be from Paul, stating that the day of the Lord was actually present. Confused and frightened by this prospect, some believers concluded that since the Lord's coming was so near, they ought to quit their jobs and spend their time waiting for him. Satan was working overtime, Beasley says. He was seeking to deceive. It was in response to this confusion that Paul wrote this second letter. Now, I have to say that if I was going to author a new religion, and particularly I was going to talk about one of the key doctrines of that faith, I think I would pay a little more attention to getting it right in the first place. And here I turn to what would be my own preparation for that return of Christ, and that would be to get a copy of this book, Many parents will be familiar with this. My children used it when they were growing up. And that is the book, Eats, Shoots, and Leads, The Zero Tolerance Approach to Punctuation by Lynn Truss. Okay, why do I say that? Well, because if you have your Bibles open, uh, I will explain that verses 3 to 10 in our reading, that's the bulk of our day, today's reading, were originally constructed as one sentence in Greek, no punctuation, and therefore a zero tolerance approach to, to punctuation is what I personally will be presenting to the Apostle Paul when I meet him. For all the suffering preachers have gone through, and Matt will go through next week as he preaches one of the hardest passages in the Bible. So anyway, there we are, that's just my, my personal, uh, but anyway, before we get into too much judgment about Paul, um, we need to be aware that He'd had inadequate time to teach this doctrine. Uh, he says that he was, well, he was run out of town um, and uh, before he could really adequately teach the Thessalonian church. And that reminds me of a good friend of mine who was a member here, Patrick Huggins. Uh, some of you may remember him. Uh, Patrick passed away some years ago. 
But Patrick had the unusual, um, uh, was unusual in that he had been to both Eton and to Gordonston, two of our um, uh, most prodigious public schools. Um, and I once asked uh, Patrick about this, uh, how is it you've been to both schools? And he, he rather sheepishly told me the story, which is that he was at Eton, and, and while he was there, his father at home received a letter from the headmaster of Eton, and it said, uh, I'd like you to take Patrick out of school because he spends rather too much time on the river and rather too little time in the classroom. And uh, this was what had happened here with Paul as well in the Thessalonians. Paul says he longed to return to them in the first letter so he could supply what was lacking in their faith. So he was, he was acutely aware of this shortcoming that he'd not been able to teach this doctrine well. So it's into this context that Paul writes this new letter very soon after the first one that we've just recently studied. Um, and then you have to ask the second question is, well, really, is this confusion really the way that God wanted to teach this important doctrine to the Thessalonians? Okay, so I'm going to make another, a couple more observations about this. The first is that without this unique set of circumstances, misconceptions, inadequate class time, the enemy's meddling that Visby talks about, uh, and we would never have this long distance uh, teaching by Paul. We would never have the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So we should be grateful that it wasn't clear the first time and clarity was brought. And also, secondly, the fact that the Thessalonians were so confused they were actually awaiting the imminent return of Christ. And so here, we have a chance to look in a unique snapshot into a church, a model church, Paul called them, that really believed that Jesus was about to come any day. Now, we considered earlier, uh, you know, what you might do in, in, the, in the event of a potential doomsday scenario. Uh, and so, but I want, um, very few people have actually faced that. But there is one one chap called Norman Feller who faced this possibility. Let me read about Norman. Like many people at the time, Norman Feller was extremely concerned about the coming of the new millennium and the potential Y2K disaster. Those of you who are old enough remember it was called the millennium bug. Feller took it a few steps further than most though. He built an underground bunker before the year 2000 and stayed in the bunker, not just for a few years, but for 14 years. And he only emerged in September 2014. <laughs> now, hopefully we're not like <laughs> normal fella. But here, similarly, we have the Thessalonians believing that something imminent is about to happen. We have a model church that believed the day of the Lord was upon them. And so, class, we come finally to our sermon title for the day. I submit that if we examine what the Thessalonians were doing, what Paul commends them for, what his further instructions were, then we have a model answer to the question how to be faithful in the last days. Okay, you'll be pleased to know that's the end of my introduction. We're about halfway, by the way. So what characterized these Thessalonians uh, as they faced the, re the imminent return of Christ? 
Well, let me first say that they were commended for their behavior, except those who quit their jobs to wait for Christ's return. Now, there'll be more on this in later weeks, but since we're talking about doomsday scenarios, it's worth underscoring this, since sadly, it's all too common in some parts of the Christian church to think like Norman Feller did and to take drastic steps. But today, in fact, we're not going to worry about that. We're going to just look at those traits which Paul applauds and encourages. And the first of those was they were responsive to prayer and obedient to instruction. Paul commends them in his first letter. He says, we always thank God for your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Faith, hope, love. Now, if you're thinking you're going to survive eternity on a jar of uh, tahini, uh, the Bible corrects us and says that actually the only three things we take into eternity are faith, hope, and love. These are the only things that last. So they were right to focus on those things, but I'm going to focus on just one of them. But the same could be said about uh, faith and hope because I'm going to focus on love. Paul prays and gives instruction. His prayer was, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow. And then his instruction was, you love each other sincerely, yet we urge you brothers and sisters to do so more and more. Um, Rupert, our vicar, often reminds me that when he first came to this church for his interview, um, I was part of the people who welcomed him. And he reminds me that he said, what is it that St. Michael's does really well. And I had to think for a while and I said, you know what, we don't do anything really well, but we do love each other sincerely. And St. Michael's, I think, has that reputation. But here, Paul encourages us, we thank God for you, verse 3, and rightly so, because the love of all of you for one another is increasing. And I've been reminded this morning uh, thank you, Andre, that we need to continue increasing in love for one another. And notice also that they needed both prayer for this and instruction. John Stott says, we tend to speak of faith in static terms as something we either have or do not have. I wish I had your faith, you say, like I wish I had your complexion, as if it were a genetic endowment. It is similar with love. We assume rather helplessly that we either love somebody or we do not, and that we can do nothing about it. But love also, like faith, is a living relationship whose growth we can take steps to nurture. Paul tells them to grow their love for each other, and this is very practical. It involves thinking through what might bless and encourage each other. Uh, and as John Stott says, it's not just for the people we naturally love. We face difficult days ahead, we are told. And as a church, we can be thinking very practically how we might love and encourage each other through these times. The mark of real love, hope, and faith is not acting in accordance with our feelings, but serving one another despite our feelings. 
Some might call this insincerity, but God calls it endurance and perseverance, verse 4. So they responded to prayer and God's love and followed Paul's instruction to grow that love. Secondly, they were Christ-like in suffering. Now we might not face the kind of persecution that the Thessalonians had to suffer, but we will face suffering, illness, loss, bereavement. We will have suffering. And we will all at one time experience the cold shadow of death. I was so impressed uh, recently when we, um, we celebrated the life of one of, the, uh, one of our members here, Christopher Horton, and his funeral was just a few weeks ago. A relative quoted uh, Christopher and what he'd said just a few days before he died. He was laid low by a stroke that eventually killed him, and this relative asked how he was feeling and if he was in discomfort. And this was his reply. He said, suffering, yes, but nothing like my Lord had to suffer for me. Nothing like my Lord had to suffer for me. How we are in life, how we are in suffering, and how we are in death. These things, Paul says in verse 5, are the evidence of God's grace in our lives, showing us to be worthy of his calling. And just before I move on, the teaching on the second coming is clear, that there will be suffering and persecution in the last days. And I don't want us to go away thinking that here in England this will not happen. Um, if the unraveling of our Christian Judaic traditions continuing at the same pace for the next 50 years they have the last 50 years, we might soon find that Christians, even in this country, are being marginalized and persecuted for their beliefs. So Christ-like in suffering. Thirdly, they trusted in God's faithfulness and justice. Now, those who do suffer persecution, they're naturally more focused on the return of Christ because we're told it will, be the, it will bring the relief for their suffering. But secondly, and perhaps less easy to understand, is because justice will be done. They look forward because justice will be done to those who have persecuted them. This is not a popular topic today. C.S. Lewis had this to say. There is no doctrine which I would be more willingly removed from Christianity than the doctrine of hell if it lay in my power. But it has the support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by the Christian church and it has the support of reason. Verse 6 says, God is just. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and he will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. The Christian message is one of love, not taking revenge for wrongs done to us, or recognize it's by loving and praying for those who wrongly persecute us that we display our faith and our trust in God's justice. Every time we ignore a slander, every time we don't respond in kind to a harsh word, every time we overlook discrimination for the sake of Christ, we are displaying God's justice. Because who are we 
to judge. But that doesn't mean that there isn't, that doesn't mean that there isn't a judge. God is our judge. And on the day that Christ returns, he will also be the judge of all mankind. Remember, we don't retaliate because God is just. Not me, not you, but God. And when the Lord appears, verse 7, from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, then God will judge. Paul expands on this um, later, uh, and he says how he will repay those who have rejected God. Verse 8, there will be punishment for the wrong done. I think we can all kind of get that. That's justice. And then more difficult to understand, banishment from God's presence. Look, those who reject God will get what they wish for. And we can reject God in a number of ways, but principally two ways. We reject God because we are lawless and unrighteous. I.e., we choose to reject all of the moral constraint put on us uh, through God's law. And these people we call irreligious. Secondly, we can reject God because we are lawful and self-righteous. We trust in our own ability to keep God's law, but we reject our need for God. These people we call religious. Our first song today was saying, I don't want to be a Pharisee, right? a religious person who trusts in their own goodness. Everybody needs Jesus. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Everybody needs Jesus. So either way, whether we're irreligious or religious, we are making a choice to live without God and the judgment and in his judgment, he will grant our wish. Uh, and when Christ comes, all persecution and suffering will end. But also, verse 9, God will shut out from the presence of the Lord uh, the and the glory of his might those who do not trust in his gospel. C.S. Lewis again. The torture of separation is better seen not as punishments imposed by God, but as a natural and inevitable outcome of choices humans themselves make and attitudes they themselves develop. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up of which will by itself be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And that nipping in the bud is coming to Jesus, accepting our sin, and accepting his righteousness. So in summary, in our waiting for Christ's return, we should be responsive to prayer and obedient in instruction, focus our efforts on faith, hope, and love, be Christ-like in suffering, and be trusting in God's faithfulness and justice. And can I just say, that as Christians, it's something we should look forward to. I, if any of you are having difficulty with this, do come and see myself or Matt or Sam afterwards. We'd love to chat through some of these things. 
But in closing, let me just pray for us as Paul prayed for the Thessalonians in verse 10. Do bow our heads. On the day Christ comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at amongst all those who have believed. May this include us at St. Michael's because we believe to the testimony brought to us. With this in mind, we pray that our God may make us worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition our every desire for goodness and our every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that in the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and we in him. According to the grace of our Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ.